Romans 8, 18-30 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Be excellent just to have your Bibles open at that passage. We're going to be working our way through it. Romans 8 is just such a a wonderful chapter in God's Word, just opens up the very, the very heart of God's purposes and understanding. Uh, there's an outline in the leaflet that, that'll help you just as we move along too. Let me, let me pray that God will speak to us through His Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that we have the privilege of uh, considering Your Word together. Father, we pray that You, uh, by Your generosity and grace towards us, you'll, you'll be at work in our minds and hearts to help us understand Your purposes in this world. Uh, Father, we recognise that sometimes we just struggle to work that out. Uh, Often we're in situations where we can't uh, quite perceive why circumstances are piling up around us in the way they are or to see our way through them. Uh, But Father, we pray that as we consider this part of your word this morning, you'll give us clarity on the framework that helps us trust you in the midst of hard times. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't always get to see the news on television. Uh, sometimes I do. But it follows a fairly uh, standard pattern, I've noticed, even uh, if you flick between the channels. Uh, so uh, generally it always finishes with some very happy story. You know, here is a film sequence of the pandas frolicking at the zoo. You know, it sort of finishes on those happy, good, lucky notes. Or if you're on the ABC, normally a lower budget sort of, uh, stations, so they show your picture sent in by a viewer of a lovely sunset, you know, and you've got that sort of, oh, isn't that nice sort of feeling as you finish off the news, you know. But what you notice is that's in stark contrast with the previous 25 minutes or 55 minutes of the news, right, where we've been exploring uh, the devastation of an earthquake or a tsunami in Indonesia with hundreds of people killed, 
uh, famine in some other part of the world, uh, the USA and China facing off in the um, uh, the China Sea, you know, about who has rights to actually live there and trying to ram each other with their destroyers, which can't be good for anyone. And you just, you know, even the sports, which tend to dominate more and more time on the news, are not full of, you know, the, the achievements of sporting heroes, but the way they've, you know, uh, thrown their rackets on the ground or been doing drugs or been accused of sexual abuse or, you know, like it's, it's just one litany of disaster after another. Uh, that's, that's the way in which our world is. And I think it's not unrealistic. That is, it's a great world to live in that's full of problems. And you're exposed to that on a constant sort of basis just in life and as you observe life as well. And it's not just out there. Uh, it's a struggle that all of us are caught up in in different ways. Uh, so I'd be stunned if there weren't people here right now uh, who are grieving because of the death of someone close or who have heartache because there's distance in a relationship that you wished was closer or because you know people going through different trials and difficulties or family conflict. And it actually raises a, a philosophical as well as a personal question. And the question is this, if, if God is good and powerful, then surely he wouldn't want us to go through suffering and surely he's powerful enough to stop it if he were good or powerful. Now for some, that's a clincher. That is, it's the reason why they don't call themselves Christians because they're convinced that if there was a God, he would not allow those sort of things to occur. But I want to suggest to you that it's not just for those who don't believe that this is an issue. That is, it is an issue for those who are convinced believers as well. Now, last week we started off in the book of Romans. And what we saw there were a concentrated summary of the blessings, the benefits of being a Christian and how good it is to have a relationship with God. Uh, because of the, the spirit that we've been given, we've brought into that relationship with God. You pick it up in verse 15. Now, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, that is, it's an extraordinarily intimate relationship with the God who rules the universe. He calls us his children. Uh, calls us his sons, even if you're a female. That is not because he's sexist, God's not that. That is, but because you're placed in the same situation as his beloved son by being brought into a relationship with God. You have that sort of status. In other words, we are his special children. It's a wonderful thing. So if that's the case, why would he let us suffer? Now, yeah, you heard I'm a parent and a grandparent and I, I think I've spent most of my adult life trying to work out how to protect my kids and care for them and, and make sure they don't suffer and go through difficult times. Now, I'm a flawed father. <laughs> Just ask my kids. Now, my grandchildren, they still think I don't have flaws, but my, my kids are better, you know. So, But even with my flaws, I know that that's the way I'm wired with deep love. So why does God let us suffer? In fact, we're told in verse 17, the verse just before we started today, that it's actually compulsory. Do you pick, pick it up in verse 17? 
We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Romans 8, verses 18 to 30, the passage that was read, what it does for us is explores suffering in our world and how, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should think about it. The first thing you pick up as you go through um, this section is the fact that it is riddled with hope, right? Christian hope. So you go to verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now understand, it is not saying suffering isn't bad or isn't real, right? It is not saying that. But what it is saying is that suffering in this present age pales by comparison with the future that God has prepared for us. You pick it up again in verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. It's a very earthy sort of uh, illustration, childbirth, you know, and there are a few mothers here who should probably block their ears at this moment. But, you know, the, the... the picture is of the agony of childbearing, uh, but the joy of having the child. Yeah. So Sue, Sue and I, we have three kids, and they were all very big children. Right? So Ben was um, 10 pounds 6. Um, Kate was 11 pounds... No, no, sorry. Ben was 9.13. Kate was 10 pounds 6, so they were getting bigger. But David was 11 pounds 13, right? Right? <laughs> Childbirth, childbirth was an extraordinarily painful and let me say natural exercise, right? It was even worse for Sue, right? It was, um, it was just so hard to watch, you know? But get the picture here, understand that our, our world is in labour pains. That's the picture. The whole of creation is labouring. And when this present age gives birth to our future glory in the presence of God, there would just be no comparison. Like when you have the child, and I'm told by some mothers that they almost forget how hard it was to get there because of the joy of the child. It's that sort of picture that's being presented. And hope is what permeates this whole chapter. And the helpful thing about it is that it puts our suffering now in the perspective of eternity. Uh, which is so enormously useful when we're caught in the midst of it. We live in a world that's incredibly short-sighted. It lives for today. But can I say that God is not short-sighted? He is not short-sighted. Hope, the power of hope. Then we move through to verses 19 to 27, and it gives us um, insights and perspective on suffering Right now, and as you were listening to it read, you would have heard that the the idea that dominates this section is the idea of groaning. You know, groaning is the word that comes up several times. We're told that the the world or, or creation groans. Verses nineteen to twenty-two. Uh, verse twenty: the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but the will of the one who subjected it. It's interesting, isn't it? We, um, because of our experience, we think that suffering and pain are, are normal. And, of course, at one level, they are. And we think it's normal because we've never experienced 
anything else. But it's actually not the way it was meant to be. Did you hear what verse 20 says? The creation was subjected to frustration by the will of the one who subjected it. Now understand clearly what we're being told here is that God is the one who has caused this world to be a place of frustration and futility and decay. The world is not as it was created by God, but actually a world that lives under the judgment of God. That's what we're being told. When you hear of um, an earthquake like we've heard in Indonesia and a tsunami and of hundreds and hundreds being killed, or when you hear of a baby that dies in the process of childbirth, when you hear about a person who contracts AIDS because of a faulty blood transfusion, when you hear about those situations, do you find yourself like me thinking, that's not the way it's meant to be? It shouldn't be like that. You know, it's just... And let me say, when you have that feeling, it's because at one level it's not the way it's meant to be. It's not. When you go back to the first three chapters of the Bible, uh, it speaks about the way God creates the whole cosmos, brings the existence of everything into being. And after God creates at each point, we're told it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. God creates incredibly well. But as we progress through those early chapters of the Bible, what we're told is that people reject the authority of God and they choose to live independently from God and that brings the judgment of God on them. But the thing is, when you read those chapters, what you discover is the judgment of God permeates every aspect of the creation. It actually makes its way, creeps its way into everything that occurs. It's a bit like when you get a loaf of bread and you keep it for too long and it starts developing green mould, right? It doesn't just stop in one spot. It spreads through the whole loaf if you leave it for long enough. It's that sort of picture uh, that we find in the Bible. But the point here in Romans 8 is that God is not finished yet. Verse 20. The creation was subjected to frustration in hope. Or verse 21. It talks about the way the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Right? God isn't finished in terms of what he's doing with his redemption plan. But it's not just the creation that groans. We're told as we progress through here that we groan ourselves, verses 23 through to 25. Uh, we ourselves who have uh, the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. And when studies uh, are, done, are done of you know, Christians by comparison with the populations around them, the ones they live, live in the midst of, it generally shows that Christians on the whole are happier, healthier and wealthier uh, than their peers in their society. Uh, there are practical benefits uh, to being a Christian in terms of understanding the way in which we should live. We're told here, though, that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. Um, the idea is like um, a down payment on the future. Uh, you know, when you buy 
a house, you sign a contract, you pay a deposit, and then you've got this, this settlement period, the waiting time, before you actually get to move in and uh, live in the house. And the picture here is like having the first fruits of the Spirit being like the down payment, the, the deposit from God as we await the future that's still unfolding. That's the time in which we live. But the point is that now we groan as we wait. See, now we struggle with sin. But one, one day we won't struggle with sin at all. Now we struggle with, with bodies right, that, that grow old, right, that, that sag and decay and where joints stop functioning and get rheumatism. And you know, we live with those sort of bodies. We go bald. But one day we'll have a glorious resurrection body which will be just, no, I'm not looking at you, Colin, don't worry. Uh, We'll have a glorious resurrection body, which will be just absolutely wonderful. Right now we experience emotional pain, sadness and grief. But there's a day coming when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where there'll be no more grief. But can I say it's hard to live with that future hope when we live in a world that keeps promising false hope in the present. Actually, it's very, very difficult. We live in a world of um, of plastic surgery and, and liposuction, you know, where you can uh, keep, if you pay enough money, you can keep replenishing your body, you know, taking the fat out of your hips and putting it further up in your body, right? And eventually it just goes back to your hips and you keep, you know, doing this process, you know. Like, but you, if you keep going, you can actually sort of, you know, keep preserving your body. Or, or Australians, I think we live in a world that's a, um, a she'll-be-right world, you know. You, you have a crash in your car and your house burns down, you discover your insurance on both laps last week, uh, and then you get bitten by your dog who's none of you got rabies, you know, like you, you have those sort of weeks and you go, oh, but she'll be right, you know, as if that solves anything, you know, she'll be right. But there are also some Christians, I think, or people who call themselves Christians, uh, who hold out false hope in this present age. Uh, there are some that I've spoken to at different points who actually don't believe uh, that there is a future reality of living in the presence of God, even though there's some some belief in Jesus. And they think that, that life is all about working for justice in this world and the social benefit of other people. But here's the thing, you can, you can never actually achieve it. It's a good aspiration to have, but it's not possible to actually bring it bring it into into place because it ignores sin. It ignores the, the frustration and the decay that always dogs this world. It just jumps over the top of that. And what it does is it robs people of future hope. But there are also some uh, people who are believers who promise heaven. They promise the future now. They'll say things like, if you have enough faith... Uh, then God will want you to have the perfectly healthy life now or God will reward you with wealth or with happiness in this present age. But God doesn't want you to have suffering or frustration. Where's the promised suffering for believers in verse 17? Understand again, that sort of false hope strips our real hope 
the future hope and diminishes it. Friends, God doesn't promise healing now. He doesn't promise an end to groaning right now, but he does heal with his promises. Okay, He does heal with his promises. And then we go to verses 26 and 27. And uh, we've seen that the, the creation groans, we groan, and now we're told that the, the spirit groans. Isn't that an interesting idea in verses 26 and 27? At times, I think, when we're, we're struggling ourselves with, with pain or heartache or we observe others going through the same sort of difficulty, you can feel like God is a long way off and that we're by ourselves, that God's abandoned us. But can I say nothing could be further from the truth? Verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Or literally it's it's groanings that can't be expressed in words. I don't know about you, but at points um, I find it hard to know what to pray for. I find it hard to uh, articulate uh, the concerns I have uh, before God in prayer. I can think of a situation not that long ago where I was visiting a man in hospital, a man I'd known for lots of years. He'd been struggling with a cancer for uh, over a decade and he'd gone through all the treatment regimes and now he was into that sort of palliative care phase, having exercised every option. He was in pain and it was clear that his body was shutting down. Now, what do I pray for in that situation? Pray for healing? I've been praying that for years. Do I pray that God will take the pain away? But see, the trouble is I could only see one way that was going to happen. So do, do I pray that God will take the person? The person that is loved by so many and will live such a hole in people's lives. And is it ever right to pray for someone to die? You know, that sort of, that sort of struggle. But the Spirit intercedes for us. He groans with us in our pains and our tears and our struggles. See, so God is never far away. And then we come to what is really the, the mountaintop in this passage. It's verses 28 to 30. It speaks of God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering. That is, God has control and authority in this world, but it is a world that is subjected to judgment in hope. So what's God doing right now? Verse 28. We know that in all things God is working for the good of those who love him, have been called according to his purpose. Now understand that this is a promise for those who are trusting in Jesus. This is not a promise for the world. It's a promise for those whom God has worked in and who therefore love God because of the work he's done through his son. But when it speaks about the good, God working for the good, of those who love him, what's the good? What's the good? 
So if I was to ask, ask you what, what good would look like for you this week, right, you might say, well, good would look like a promotion and $20,000 more per annum in terms of my job. Or, you know, good would look like uh, improved health, freedom from some long chronic disease thing that I've been struggling with. Or good would look like that God will help me study so I actually pass those exams that are coming up, you know, as opposed to failing them. Or well, what would you say is the good thing for you right now? And that's the answer, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right, Frank. Because that's the answer that comes in the verse that immediately follows. Verse 29. The good being spoken of, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God speaks of the good, then he tells you what the good is. Uh, God's glorified his son uh, and he continues to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by bringing people into relationship with himself through his son and he continues to glorify himself in that process by causing those whom he has called into relationship to become more like his son. Now can I say in our world this is just a total revolution in thinking because it's not this world and our happiness in this world that actually is the focus. It is God's glory and dwelling with him for all eternity and serving him now and becoming more like Jesus now. See, that's our good, being shaped like the Lord Jesus Christ with whom we will dwell with, our brother, for all eternity. Friends, we don't control the present Uh, We haven't yet experienced the future, but can I say that this truth from God, it controls our thinking about both. We don't control the present, we haven't experienced the future, but this promise from God helps us in our thinking about both things. Now how does that work? Let's say um, after church we go outside, we're having coffee and you look out into the car park and you see, well what do you know? Someone stolen my car while I was in church. What a mean thing to do, you know. So how do you respond at that point? You go, praise the Lord, you know. He's working for my good and someone stole my car. This is just wonderful news, you know. Like, oh, I'm so excited, you know. Like, so how do you respond to that, that reality? Let me say it's bad if someone steals your car. Right? That's not a good thing at all. But here's the thing, the promise here is that God can and will use it to draw you to himself and overrule for that purpose and shape you more like his son. And there can be all sorts of reasons why God may or may not be at work to achieve that sort of purpose. Friends, time and time again, I talk to followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who talk about what they have learnt as they have gone through difficult times trusting in Jesus. And the way in which they have been refined and shaped to actually love him more and to have their hope set more on the promise of eternity through difficult times. John Calvin was a 16th century reformer. He said about this, this doctrine or these verses here in Romans, he said it's a most useful Christian doctrine. Most useful Christian doctrine. And this is what he says. Every event in your lives 
passes through the sieve of God's perfect control before it reaches you. Every event in your lives passes through the sieve of God's perfect control before it reaches you. I think it's very, very helpfully put. Friends, suffering is not the last word. That's the point of this passage. Notice what it says in verse 30. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now this um, concept of justification is the idea of being saved and made right with God by faith in his son. So if you read through the first seven chapters of Romans, this is, this is a big theme that just is hit time and time again as you go through those chapters. Justified, made right with God. And notice here, it's a clearly past event. Those he justified, it's already done. Right? Made right with God uh, through what Jesus has done. But it also speaks about glory. Now, of course, we know that glory is a future thing, don't we? Now, when we actually go and dwell with God, with the Lord Jesus Christ, when we see him face to face. But did you hear it's not a past thing? Look again, verse 30. Those he justified, he also glorified. It doesn't say those he justified, he will glorify says, those he justified, he also glorified, right? It is a past tense event. You see, what we have here is the power of certain hope. The knowledge that God has made us right through his son, with him. The knowledge that he has promised that we will dwell with him for all eternity. And we have the down payment of that right now, the guarantee of that future hope because of what God has done. We don't experience it all fully yet, but it is secured for us by God through his work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And right now, my friends, right now, God is using all things to shape us like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is the good, and it's good for us. God works for the good of those who love him. God works for the good of those who love him. Can I encourage you in a world in which we struggle to lay that promise up in your heart, uh, to water it, to fertilise it and to nurture it? And if you do that, it is a promise that will sustain you until you meet him face to face. It will. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for... uh, Just a part of your word is such a stellar and powerful uh, section of the Bible that draws us to the very core of your intentions for us, your promises to us, and gives us... uh, It doesn't remove pain or heartache or struggle, but it does give us framework, a, a bigger picture of what's going on in our world right now and your intentions for us, not only now, but for the future. And Father, we pray that we will just keep remembering that you, as you always have been, are at work in our world and at work for the good of those that love you, those you've called in a relationship with yourself. Father, we pray that we will cling to your word, cling to your promise, that we'll trust it, that you'll keep helping us to understand it, especially through the troughs, through the valleys, 
uh, that you'll keep our focus on you and not ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.